Hi there, and welcome to the Oompal.com podcast. I'm Oli, and for episode number 52, it is my pleasure to bring to you a chat with the incredibly talented Mr. Chris Morgan. Go right now and take a peek at morganpipes.com. The thing I find so interesting about Chris's work is this. You never know what's next. This podcast was made possible by tobaccopipecollectors.com, a.k.a. TPC. Go check out what Mike has to offer over at tobaccopipecollectors.com right now. You'll find that membership does indeed have its privileges. Become a member and enjoy discounts at all the vendors listed, including yours truly. Check out the forum there, and if you're a carver or vendor of any sort, consider becoming a preferred vendor. Lots going on over at tobaccopipecollectors.com, including some very nice available pipes. So go check it out right now and let me know what you get. The following podcast was recorded on August 16th, 2013. Sit back, grab a pipe, and stay a while. I hope you enjoy. On the line with us today, we have American pipe maker, Mr. Chris Morgan. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Chris, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, how old you are, and a little bit about your family. Uh, well, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in uh, a town that is now larger, so most people know of uh, San Jose, California, Silicon Valley. Um, I am 29, and um, basically we, uh, you know, my family's been here for probably about uh, 50 years, 55 years. Um, previously, my grandmother moved here from San Francisco. So, yeah. So your whole family is basically uh, out there in California. Wow. Yeah, everyone's very local. Um, we have a few, you know, places around the country, but they're distant. It's mainly, you know, the direct family and, uh, you know, the expanded family is still very local. How did you first become interested in pipes in general? Uh, in high school, I found one of my grandfather's pipes. Uh, it was an old uh, Shalom, kind of like an author shape. It was kind of weird, though. Um, and it was, you know, chewed to hell, and I just thought I'd give it a try. And uh, I think my first tobacco that I got was a um, chocolate mint at one of the nearby brick and mortars. Uh, the guy was raving about it. You know, of course, sell the new guy some some aromatics, which is always a bad idea. And, um, you know, bit the hell out of my tongue and, and just I didn't enjoy it at all. So I put it down for a month and then picked it up again. Um, it was mainly sort of, you know, something to do when we would have bonfires at the beach and stuff. And uh, eventually put it down for a while and picked it up in the later years of college. And... Um, Pretty much, that's kind of where my, my serious interest in it started. You know, before it was just sort of a something to do, and now it became something to think about and something to study um, and something to emulate later on down the road. And I had been looking around. You know, I, I used to do a lot of woodworking and sculpting. I was a ceramic artist uh, since, uh, like, sophomore year of high school. And, you know, I had sold some pieces, so I figured, okay, well, I could probably carve something. You know, if you can sculpt something out of clay, it's, it's not totally different, uh, except for the fact that you can't put it back 
when you cut it off, <laughs> like you can with clay. Yeah. Um, so I looked around and bought a a um, drone pipe kit from Pimo, and soon realized that this was going to suck up a, a major part of my savings because at the time, uh, right after college, I was pretty much dead broke. Um, so you just kind of scrimp and save to buy, you know, like a forty dollar kit, and then you buy a drill bit, and then you buy, and you, know, you start accumulating tools. And um, you know, I made a pipe, sold it to a friend, and then it kind of just started taking off from there. I started buying, uh, you know, pre-drilled blocks from a friend, and um, then started. You know, had had the pre-made stems, and I did that for about a year, year and a half, and then it just it really started taking off from there. Um, about about when did you start with that uh, the PMO stuff? Uh, it was around two thousand five, two thousand six. I officially started doing this as a part-time gig in two thousand six, um, early two thousand six, I believe, and then it yeah it it was sort of a um, you know, most guys in this business start off, well, at least in the U.S., they start off with it as a hobby. It's never, um, you know, we don't really do apprenticeships here like they were done in Europe or still are done in Europe. Um, so, you know, everyone starts from basically nothing or they start from a side trade and they lateral over because it's more interesting or the money might be better or something like that. And... I kind of lateraled, but it was, I was kind of starting from scratch because I used to do um, furniture, you know, very basic, almost, uh, I forget the right word, but mortise and tenon, no glue, no screws. It's just wood fitting into wood, basically, furniture. Um, so, I don't know, I felt the relationship between the two would be similar, and that's kind of why I went at it. Tell me about your your ceramics. When when did you get into that, and where did that take you? And do you still do it? I don't anymore. Um, I'm actually thinking about getting back into it, and there are some things that are a little tricky with that. the The floor of my shop is wood, so to have a kiln in here would be tricky. I'd have to put up a lot of flashing or uh, put some tile down, but. I started in, in high school, um, I think it was freshman year, I started doing ceramics. You know, just sort of wheel throwing and building pots and, you know, coil built stuff and, or I'm sorry, extrusion built stuff. And um, about so the first semester and then the second semester, I took like an intermediate class and then. I did a advanced class that wasn't on the curriculum necessarily uh, with the art instructor and kind of just got better and better. Uh, sophomore year, I, I started doing some really, really big stuff. Um, you know, a year of experience isn't really enough to get into like the real fine points of, of turning or, um, you know, design or even firing. It's just not enough time. So I figured, well, I've got a limited amount of time here, so let's just go as big as we possibly can. So I was turning 25-pound blocks of clay into a pot that was like three feet tall and wow. maybe two and a half feet wide with a lid. And 
it ended up getting picked up by the school. They started noticing these things and um, ended up actually buying one of my pieces for the, what they call it, it's like the secretary's office, but it's mainly like the dean's office. And what's, what school is I think, this? I think, uh, Bellarmine College Preparatory, San Jose. It was an all-boys school, and it was mainly like college curriculum, um, just to fit into sort of a high school feel. Right. And how old were you um, when you went there? Oh, um, let's see. That was from 99 to 2003. So I would have been between 16 and 18, 15, 19. Might have been 16 to 19, actually. So it sounds like a, a really interesting place. Uh, did, yeah. you, did you enjoy going there? I did. You know, a lot of people give it a lot of shit because, you know, it's all boys school. But, you know, the kind of stuff that we got to do was just like mind-blowingly cool. Like most of the time, um, classes were built on uh, like outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, almost everything was curved. Um, you know, we were doing stuff like, like, for example, my marine biology class, you know, we were instead of dissecting like frogs, you know, like most biology classes, we were dissecting sharks like in the classroom. Wow. Um, Really cool stuff. I mean, and I mean, we had some of the best teachers around. Now we also had some of the the not as great teachers. Um, And some of the classes were just pointless. Every high school has that. But um, I actually went into college being marine biology major. And... No, I wouldn't have been able to do so if it wasn't for that school, just because the, the class was so well built. I mean, we had the opportunity to go scuba diving in Mexico, which didn't happen because not enough people signed up for it. But, you know, or, um, yeah, scuba diving in Mexico. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was an awesome school. I mean, it was extremely well-funded. So we had pretty much the best of everything. It was very much built like a college. The endowment fund was sizable, so... For example, um, nowadays, Bellman actually doesn't, they don't use uh, textbooks. This just happened, I believe, this year started. Um, everything is on iPad, and you're basically in issues in iPad. Wow. So it, it sounds know, like they're um, very, uh, very forward-thinking kind of place. Um, very forward, yeah. yeah. Sounds like a sounds like a really neat place to study. Did you also do cool. furniture there? No, they used to have a wood shop when my dad went. Um, oh wow, your dad went there. Oh yeah, my dad went, and actually, uh, my friend's grandfather went. There. <laughs> wow, that's I wild. Believe that. Yeah, it's it's weird to hear the stories. You know, when you're um, my favorite is if I can sidetrack for a minute. Um, there used to be a place across the street and it, Bellman used to work like sort of a small town. So there were little shops and restaurants around the school's border on the other side of the street that pretty much only served the school. So there was like a sandwich shop, there was a Mexican restaurant, there was a barber, and then there was like a little quickie mart kind of thing. And next to the Mexican restaurant, 
there's a seating area with umbrellas and park benches and, you know, picnic benches and stuff. And there's a line there, real faint in the cement. And it's just this really weird circle that kind of comes off the building. It's just painted. But it's very faint. You can almost not see it. And I was, my dad and I were walking on campus one day, and he's like, oh, you know what this spot used to be? And I was like, what? He's like, that's the smoking section. And I was like, what the hell? And he's like, yeah, we had a smoking section here. I mean, you were, I think it was 16 at the time, might have been 18, but if you were, uh, you know, at a certain age, <clears throat> you could sit out here between classes and smoke, like outside, you know, right, right on campus here. Wow. And it kind of blew my mind because that was really not a very long time ago. And you think about where we're at today, where you have to be 50 feet away from the entrance of any building. Yeah. And, you know, no public parks. No, I mean, in my town, technically, it's illegal to smoke outside. Wow. You have to be either in your yard or indoors. That's wild. It's weird. But, yeah, it's, it was a very cool school. Very forward-thinking and... um worked very much like a college as opposed to a, a normal high school. Um, tell me how you got into furniture. Furniture was, you know, it was kind of just a shot in the dark for me. I kind of just started, I started restoring furniture actually for my grandma. Um, she's really big into um, collecting. So she would get, most of the time, and this is kind of the way it started, what, she would do is get rocking chairs and they were always missing one of the rockers. And I would always have to basically cut the piece of wood for the rocker and match it to the paint because restoring a rocking chair is no small feat. I mean that you're dealing with very, very fine spindles um, and you'd have to sand all that stuff down. And it's just, it's a lot of work. Um, so I would just make a new rocker and match it in age and wear and just make it look like it, it was never missing. And I started kind of doing that a lot more. And I've, I've done endless amounts of rocking chair rockers. Um, and then started doing little stuff, you know, like uh, lamps, you know, wood turning on lamps. And then I started going back into the furniture making. And I, I made my pipe rack, um, I made my, my side table here in the shop, a bunch of other stuff, a stool, a couple of stools. So you've been into yeah. woodworking for, for quite a while then. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, an addiction. Um, you know, there's some people that just like really like the outdoors, and just because the smells you get and just the, the cleanliness and the purity that is you know, in the woods or in the desert or wherever it is that you're wanting to be. Um, for me, that's kind of wood. You know, when you cut into a fresh piece of wood, you're seeing something that no one's ever seen before. You're, um, you're experiencing the transformation of basically an inanimate object that used to be alive. You know, and to me, there's a certain romance to that. That's, it's essential if you're going to be representing that piece of wood the way that it should be represented. I like that. Thank you. And it, it that's even more so with wood turning. I mean, 
I've, I have some friends that are phenomenal wood turners. And the kind of stuff that they do, they, they almost always turn in green, which is cool. Um, because there's all kinds of moisture flying everywhere. And you've got, you know, you're standing on like a, a six inch tall, just mound of wet shavings. And there's a humidity inside the shop. And it, for a lot of people, it's just like, this is annoying, you know? My yeah. tools are rusting, all that. But there's something very satisfying about just, I, I wouldn't even call it cutting. It's like slicking through layers of wood to, to make that piece of wood that maybe would have been, uh, you know, cut down for whatever reason. Um, maybe part of the tree was dying. And they're turning it into something that's useful. And it's the same kind of, it's the same kind of experience. You know, it's, it's a very raw, emotion-filled journey, I guess, for me. And there's there's a whole lot to consider when you're working with with green wood, isn't there? As as far as what's what's going to happen to that uh, as it starts to dry, and and how long is it going to take for it to actually dry out, and all, all all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's you really have to play the guessing game and be part, you know, a gambler when you're doing it. I I don't I haven't done a ton of turning. Um, it just it never really caught on for me. Because turning is really based on the material you get and the speed at which you can work for, for, you know, if you're going to make a living at it. Um, but when you're drying it, it's, it's such a funny thing because my method was I would turn it green, scoop up all the shavings that came off of it, and maybe, you know, 10, 15 pages of newspaper and crumple them up and stuff it in a bag. And I would just let it sit in that bag for three months and pull it out. And, you know, sometimes it'll mold a little bit, which is, if it's not for food food use, that's not a problem. Um, but, you know, you open the bag every couple of days and let it, you know, sort of recirculate air and kind of keep its humidity around 60, 70, if you can. Um, and then chuck it back up turn it to the exact size because it's going to shrink. Um, or if you're looking at the grain being vertical, it's going to shrink horizontally. And you're going to end up with an oval where you started with a circle. And you have to return that a little bit and regain your shape. And then by the time it's dry, it'll be the right shape and you can finish it and use it. That's but yeah, cracking, cracking is scary really, really scary when it, when it comes to that point because it's not quite dry and you're at your finished diameter and thickness and everything and it cracks, you're just going to be kicking yourself because you didn't wait that extra two days. Yeah, and that's just a whole lot of work that you've already put into it. Oh, yeah. And, and not to mention the time that you've been waiting and babying it and everything else. Um, oh, yeah. At what point did you decide that, that pipe making was something more than just a hobby for you? You know, I, I'm not really sure. It, it's kind of it's kind of something that just becomes. I think it was the point that I found it was when I find when I moved out because I, you know, like most people, came back from college. You know, moved back in with my parents for a brief time to kind of save up some money. 
And when I finally moved into my first place and was able to have all my, my shop stuff spread out in you know a single-car garage, which was actually three times the space that I had at my parents' house, um, you know, I was working with like a 10 by 10 little area there. Uh, granted I had, a, you know, I had a shop smith, so it didn't take up very much room, but then you, you know, you have all your tools and it's just, this not enough room for anything. Um, I think that's the point that I found that I wanted to do this full time. And then hitting that point took maybe another six months, maybe two, six months to a year. And then at that point I was able to do it full time and, be fairly successful with it, um, enough to pay the rent, buy groceries. You know, I wasn't traveling first class to Dubai every weekend or anything, but, you know, it was... It it was working out for you. Yeah, it it worked out. As far as your workload goes, do you do um, commission orders or do you do um, mostly orders for your retailers and slide in a commission here and there? How does that work? for you that's that's kind of how i do it um you know i do commission work now um i actually let's see the last time i think it was pipes magazine interviewed me i was not doing commissions and you know i got to thinking and asking around and there's a few you know a few guys i spoke to and they're like you might be the only guy that doesn't accept commissions in the states and i was like well i haven't really needed to till now you know, it's just, it seems like there, you hit a point where the amount of pipes you make can't possibly be sold in retail shops um, volume-wise. It just, it doesn't work. Um, and you need to branch out and find a way for your customers to challenge you and say, hey, I need this, this, and this. Or, you know, you're providing a sort of, you know, it's basically another service almost. It's really pipe making in its basic form you're not just making what you want you're making what other people want mm-hmm. yeah. um and I, I actually started doing that about a month and a half ago and i've been getting orders um mainly though i'm focusing on a few other projects at the time so i'm trying to get you know i'm trying to get everything in order to where it's easy to control so if I, you know, if I get a commission, I'll usually start on it that week, mm-hmm. um, and just take care of it. You know, I, I, I don't like to keep too much of a waiting list. Um, so I'll do that. I'll put that as a priority, and then I'll make what I need to make for my shops, and then I'll go back and go back to the R and D stuff for my other projects I'm working on, and then sometimes here and there I'll work on a big project like you saw the the stash wardens. Uh, Calabashian smoke box. I'm working on some more stuff that's like that. So I'm kind of all over the board. Who were your mentors along the way? Ooh. Um, you know, I would probably say my grandfather first and foremost. Um, you can have all the training in the world, but if you don't have a support system, it means next to nothing. Um, at, at least in my experience, you know, um, I started making pipes at a time in my life where P 
people were not exactly thrilled that I was doing that. Um, and he told me every single time, don't care about what anyone thinks, just do what you like, make pipes. And he was a huge pipe smoker. His, his, uh, he was a pipe smoker. His father was a pipe smoker. And my grandma's father was a pipe smoker. And he kept just beating that into me, basically, do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. Um, and I, that kind of stuck with me. But as far as inter, you know, inter-industry people um, supporting me or, or mentoring me um, along the way, my first real serious piece of advice was from Tom Elfang, and I showed him a pipe uh, via Skype, and he kind of looked at me, he's like, and this was at the time, I mean, I think this was like 2007 or 8, you know, I said, oh, I was so excited about this pipe, and I was like, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, it's okay. And it just, it really hits home, and you're just like, wow, you know, it, it's a it's a gut check, you know, you realize I have so much further to go, especially now that Tom's come up on his like 40th year. You know, it's, you realize how much dedication some of these guys have put into it. And you're sitting on three years, you know, trying to really be proud of your work and pride's fine. As long as you have a realistic expectation that you're not going to be the best in those three years. And that's kind of what kind of humbled me. You know, it made me realize it's just, you got a long way to go. You never stop learning, basically. And um, let's see, Eltang. Uh, there were a couple of guys that prefer that I don't mention them, so I'm not going to. Um, but nowadays, it's pretty much, you know, some of the guys in the business know Lars Kiel. Um, he does a lot of the website design. He's a, a Danish fellow. Really, really nice guy. And he is probably been one of the biggest helps. Um, Nemo, definitely. And um, Karen, his wife, you know, I talked to her about shapes and she has a really organic approach to her pipe making. And, and you know, Nemo, of course, is the, the owner of the briar mill that um, most of us use. And more recently, uh, Greg Peace. You know, him and I, we normally have you know, a couple, two, three-hour conversations a week, um, just bullshitting about food and wine and beer and pipe shapes and tobacco and everything. And I think he's been one of the biggest helps lately at this stage in my career. Um, he he kind of spans both the consumer side and the the business side. You know, the 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 retailer side, the manufacturer side, he's pretty much worn a lot of hats. So I, I take a lot of my cues from him, mm -hmm. but yeah. And, and, and my friends, you know, like <laughs> I've had a lot of, um, you know, a lot of help from, uh, you know, guys on YouTube. I'm a big part of the YouTube, YouTube, um, pipe presenters community. And, uh, that's been a huge help too. There's the Sparky's Pipes, fantastic carver. Um, Joe Case, you know, we speak very frequently, who's, he makes the, uh, 
the Dagner Slayer and the Poe. I think you you spoke to Joe a yeah. while back. Yeah, I did a, yeah. a podcast with Joe. Yep. So yeah, you run the gamut. Very cool. What influenced your style in the beginning, and how has that changed? Well, I think you know a lot of a lot of new carvers are told to to duplicate classic shapes and. You know, I, I did that for, for a time, and then it, it honestly just got boring for me. I mean, being from an artist background, um, you know, classic shapes generally lend themselves to, to craftsmen. And I find a definite distinction between artists and craftsmen. Um, I I would just keep, you know, I would do like a Love It, or I would do like a, a Bing, or, you know, like a standard uh, Dublin or something like that. And then, you know, sit back and look at it, and it just didn't, something about it just didn't work. It looked like I was trying too hard just to get that exact ratio of, you know, shank to bowl size and, and all that. So I started going for more, you know, organic shapes and horns and blowfish and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, some of the, when I, got into that when I started, I would say probably 2006, 2007, eight, maybe, um, a lot of the stuff that I would look at would be, you know, the stuff that the, um, the, not the lesser known Danes, but you know, the guys that aren't immediately thought of, you know, for their, their shaping ability. And I would take shapes from them. Um, same thing with the Russians, you know, that, that whole game was just getting started really, um, on the, you know, the world scale. Those guys. I mean, I was just—I would look at these just wild shapes and try to come up with my own, and that it did great for me. You know, when I was selling pipes, those were the ones that sold. When I made a love it or a billiard, they—they they hung around for a while, and I found out at that point that I was not a classical pipe maker. You know, I was—I wasn't really a freehand pipe maker. I was kind of just some weird fusion in between. Would you say that's kind of what keeps you motivated from one pipe to the next, your um, artistic drive more than anything else? Definitely, definitely. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say I'm not as pipe crazy as most guys um, who end up either being pipe makers or pipe collectors. It really, I mean, I look at my collection, almost everything's sandblasted. Um, almost everything is a classic shape. That's what I like to smoke. Um, I like to make crazy stuff, you know, stuff that people aren't generally going to find anywhere else. Now it's a little more common now, but yeah, the, the motivation factor is very necessary for me because being, you know, I'm not going to generalize by saying it's all artists, but being an artist like myself, um, I could not do billiards all day long or even just classic shapes all day long. There just isn't enough mystery to be explored for me. Um, when I cut into a block, let's just take, for example, a blowfish. Um, I've had three really, really nice um, high-contrast blowfish this year. I'm always looking for that one that's going to top all three of them. And that's not... You know, it's, that's largely part of the way that you shape it and the way that you cut it. Um, and I just want to find that perfect piece. You know, and same thing with the straight grains. Um, it's a little trickier to utilize straight grain. 
but you know, I want to find that perfect 360 degree straight grain, you know, brandy. But yeah, it's it's all motivation. If I don't have motivation or uh, the interest, I don't do it. it just it it shuts off my my interest level. <laughs> yeah, I I know uh, where you're coming from in, in that way. I I have this kind of idea that if I died tomorrow. You know the pipe that I worked on today. Would I would I be like, yeah, I was doing the right thing at that moment, you know? Because mm-hmm. God knows, y- y- who knows how long we have on on this earth. So I I don't want to waste my time doing something to um for any other reason than the, all of the exploration that I already know I have to do and that I'm really excited about. You know, I get mm-hmm. suggestions from people like, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And it's like, guys, I've got books of stuff that yeah. I'm going to have to get out of my out of my head and, and into the yeah. real world before I die, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what motivates me. So I totally um, see where you're coming from there. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I feel most of the time. You know, that's what I'm driving for is, making this stuff available to as many people as possible. Um, and that's why I have to usually try very different avenues of, of what I'm doing. I mean, I have to change up my shapes to access a different, you know, a different, uh, demographic or a different kind of collector. How do your pieces come together? So when you're making a pipe, do you start off on paper or on the block or maybe a little bit of both or what? Hmm. You know, it really depends. Uh, sometimes I will just go for it and I'll, you know, I, I do all my drilling in the lathe. Um, a lot of guys do the freehand drilling, the shape and then drill. I just, you know, I prefer to cut my blocks and my blocks are cut in a fashion uh, that I can drill and then shape later. And, it, you know, that usually satisfies me because of the shapes I'm doing. Um, I can drill freehand, so I'm able to access those, other, you know, those other avenues. But, you know, I'm still learning that that whole technique. Um, but I guess sometimes I'll just drill it, and I'll just start shaping. You know, I'll sit there and I'll just spray it with water, and I'll shape some more, and I'll spray it with water, and that's usually the blowfish shapes that I do. Um, just come out to be whatever the grain says they're going to be. Uh, if it's going to be more of a Danish shape, something um, that's got a lot of nice fine curves in it, um, I will draw that out usually on the block. If it's going to be a pretty serious project, then I'll draw it out on paper, and there will be multiple drafts before you know before I I actually come to a, a rough uh, you know shape. But you know, like the reverse calabash pipes, you have to drill or you have to draw it on a block because you're just dealing with too many factors that could cause problems. And most of my RC pipes are, there's a very fine formula to create exactly what I need out of that pipe. You know, the, the, the depth and the diameter of that chamber has to be a certain size in relation to the depth and diameter of the tobacco chamber and the length of the airway. So that needs to be drawn, usually. How do you stamp your pipes, and do you grade them? Uh, I do not grade my pipes. Um, 
Well, I'll, I'll, I'll hit the stamp question first. I, my pipes are always stamped, uh, Morgan pipes. And then I have my rabbit logo, which denotes the, uh, well, right now it just denotes any pipe that I've made and it's sort of just an extra level of quality control. Um, and then let's just say for this year, it would be stamped, uh, 13. And on the other side of the logo, the rabbit logo would be whatever number pipe it is for that year. As far as grading, um, I don't grade. Um, I do have different lines of pipes that I put out, but if, if I don't consider that pipe to be at least, you know, if I don't consider it to be my best work, it doesn't go, it doesn't leave the shop. It doesn't get stamped. Um, I don't do seconds. Um, I don't have a place where I sell my seconds. They either get burned or they get made into, um, you know, sandblasted pipes and I send them to friends or I smoke them here or et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I have like my Titan line, which has its own stamp, and that denotes a very, very exceptionally large pipe, usually over, you know, eight inches long total or seven inches long total. Um, and I specifically source blocks that are just ridiculously massive for those. Um, then I've also got the raw line, which are a lower priced, only sandblasted, all small shapes, um, all very simple shapes, and they do not have a finish. They don't have a stain. They don't have a wax coat. Um, and those are mainly for the guys that want the purest form of briar possible. Um, I've been considering even making briar stems for them, just because I think that would be kind of a neat, a neat addition. But for now, it's you know hand cut ebonite stem. They're still high grade pipes. Um, they're just smaller, sandblasted, and no finish. The cool thing with that benefit that I find is that they color up really quickly. Um, you know, when you don't have that wax there, there's oils from your hands, there's oils from the smoke that attach directly to it, um, and then there's also the inter-smoking, um, sort of that tar migration, you know, from the bowl outwards. So. Yeah, I, I I really like um, that idea of of not just a, a virgin look with no color, but but no wax, no nothing. I think that's I think that's fantastic. Love it. It's mainly for the guys that you know they don't really care about what the finish is going to be. It's it's mainly just a very pure smoke. I mean, you don't. There's no other flavors going on. I don't bowl coat them. It's just what you see is what you get. It's a it's a smoking machine. Where did the rabbit come from? Well, there's an old um, Indian story, a Native American story, and it's called, it, there's many different versions of it, and they're called different things, but the one that I really, really like is it's the story of the, the puma and the rabbit. And basically, it comes down to this. There's, it's, it's told like a story to younger you know, children, and it's a very interactive story. So, you know, an older elder, I guess it would be, would say, you know, uh, you know, we start start off saying there, you know, there was a puma, 
and he was trying to hunt this rabbit. And he couldn't find the rabbit because the rabbit was, and I'm paraphrasing, the rabbit was in this little hole, you know, in a den in the ground. And, you know, the young child would say, well, why wasn't the rabbit afraid? And the elder would say, because the puma is stressing out, you know, he's all stressed out, all pissed off trying to eat this rabbit. And the rabbit is just sitting in his den smoking a pipe, relaxing. And he doesn't have a care in the world because the puma can't get to him. So it's mainly a, it was my way of sort of subliminally explaining, well, to myself and to others, you know, I'm just making pipes. You know, I, I don't really care what other, you know, other pipe makers, you know, may like my pipes. They may not. I had a kind of a tough time in the beginning with pipe maker relations. And, you know, some of it was because of my own misplaced cockiness. And, you know, I, I've tried to sort of turn over a, a new leaf over the years and kind of humble myself. And I think I've done my best at that. Um, but there was still a lot of, you know, a lot of problems because, you know, there were some pipes that I sold in the beginning that were very, uh, highly inflated prices. And, you know, that was no doing of mine. There wasn't, you know, I didn't do anything to cause that. It just, when you auction pipes, they sell for what they sell for. Um, and I think that it kind of angered a lot of people considering I was a new guy on the block. So it was kind of my way of, of letting go of that. You know, basically making that my logo was kind of, it, it was an interesting story to have, you know, and it made me feel better because I'm just the rabbit making pipes. And if if you want to have a problem with it, then that's that's no concern of mine. That's a, that's a great uh that's a great way to be. I, I, I really like that. Good show. Are there ever any pipes that once you've made are hard to part with? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have two in the shop right now, but actually one of them I've been hanging on to for about a year. Um, I find this fascinating it, because some it, you're either you know one side or the other. If you're a pipe maker, either you're like, nope, I have no whatsoever. It's this stuff is for sale. I yeah. I never get attached to it. Period. End of story. Or you're on the other side of the fence where you're like, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's yeah. interesting to always hear. Um, I, I I would say it's probably about fifty fifty. But go ahead, go ahead. Definitely, yeah, and you know, it's funny though. The the people that consider themselves craftsmen are generally the ones that will let go of any pipe. Everything's for sale. The artist is a little trickier, and I've I have a few friends that are artist pipe makers. I have a few friends that are craftsman pipe makers, and you know, one is not better than the other. Generally, craftsman, I would say, like, who's a great friend of mine, that guy can turn out easily a pipe a day, sometimes two, and they're all spot on dead accurate and they're fantastic pipes they're a little less expensive but they're awesome now i'll spend up to i have spent up to two weeks straight working on a pipe um those are generally the pipes that i have a hard time letting go of for example the the, the warden's calabashian smoke box man that was hard to let go of i spent about eight to ten months 
of my life working on that thing. Um, on and off, that's not something you can just mad scientist. You know, that's you have to kind of give yourself breaks because it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of pipe to work on basically. But when you sit there and you take something, you know, you take all the raw materials and you think about just them sitting in a pile, and then you think about what the finished product looks like. Looks like it really. It's, it makes it very difficult to hand that over because the amount of time you've invested is one thing, but you just made what you like. You, know, you made your dream happen, and then you have to hand that over to someone else. Now, the fact that I did hand it over to a very deserving person made it made it a lot easier. You know, I I, I was I had no problem with that. And the fact that he smoked it and showed his, you know, the maiden voyage of that pipe uh, on video, and it was in it was in front of a lot of people. Um, they had a south southeast uh, YouTube pipe presenters conference down there, and it was it's on YouTube, you know, and it was shared and it, it was on Facebook and Instagram and everything, and that that made it all the better because everyone got to see that happen. Um. I have a pipe in my possession right now that actually was purchased. I finally let it go to uh, to a shop, and they uh, it's basically just a, this massive calabash, like a gourd calabash, um, four inches tall, nine inches long, and three inches wide at the cap. Super high contrast cap, and the rest of it's sandblasted. And that one I've had a hard time letting go of because I just want to smoke that one so bad. <laughs> You know, it's it's just that one smoke. Like, can I just smoke it once and I'll sell it to you? You know, it's one of those things. <laughs> it's an experience. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm I I switch back and forth. If I'm not feeling very sentimental about something, and I just feel the pride of someone gets to smoke this, then that's one thing. If if I really feel like, man, this would be perfect for me, sometimes I'll keep it. You know, that's I make pipes for that reason, so I Do can you? have free pipes. Do you have a pipe collection? How how big is it? I've got about 70 pipes. Um, you know, a, a large percentage of those are, I would say maybe like 20% of those are cobs. I have this weird fixation with cobs that, you know, I don't even really smoke them all that often. Um, I just like, I like them. I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, like I said before, like, you know, I have, I've got a Dunhill. I've got a Parker. I've got... You know, my absolute favorite pipe in my collection is um, one that a friend and I, you know, he, he came down, uh, Scott Harris, Sparky, Sparky's Pipes, came down and we basically made the same exact pipe at the same time. And, I mean, the drilling, the length, everything's identical. And we just had it in our heads that we we're going to do roughly the same pipe. And it came out damn near exact. It was really weird. Um, that's probably one of my favorites. And then I have one from Jorn Larson, who's very well known in some circles and then virtually unknown in other circles. Mainly the new, the new collectors have no idea who that is. Um, but it's basically as close as you can get to Yeskonowitz without spending, you know, $3,000 on the pipe. Um, I believe Jorn was his understudy, or it might have been his like co-study. 
I don't remember exactly, but man, it is a damn nice pipe. And it, it really wasn't very expensive. It was just, you know, it was a good deal. But yeah, I have, I have an okay collection. A lot of it's mine. Um, and a few other indie carvers, as we call it, some of the, the newer, smaller independent guys. Do you have a preference for straight or bent pipes? I prefer straight. Straight to quarter bent at the most. Um, past that, I would say the only fully bent pipe I would ever smoke is a Gold Calabash. Um, I have some Meerschaums that are are pretty heavily bent, but uh, I, you know I really just prefer a straight pipe. You know my my favorites would be like Dublin's, Billiards, and uh, Princess. What's your favorite tobacco right now? It's oh, hard to choose. I well, my favorite tobacco right now I actually can't talk about because it's a prototype for someone. <laughs> but, um, well, besides that, everyone, one. besides yeah. that, one. Um, I would probably venture to say Grey Havens by McClellan's. Grey Havens. It's it's sort of a um, it's a very pretty heavily perique based. Um, if, if you've had Frogmorton on the bayou, it's like that, but it just tastes a little bit purer. If that makes sense. Like, it, mm-hmm. it's not as um, dark. How about, a, how about a number two? What's your number two? Number two would probably be Froggy on the bayou or Frog Cellar or Mississippi River. It's a tie between the three. Okay. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Let's put that as uh, Jermaine's brown flake. We'll do that. And then put the other ones at three. <laughs> <laughs> I always forget about that one because I just don't smoke it very often. But um, I've, I've accumulated a pretty massive cellar over the years. Um, and that takes up, I mean, I've got like three pounds of Jermaine's brown flake. <laughs> wow. Yeah, in tins. Tins. What do you uh, what do you like to do in your spare time when you're not making pipes? If you have spare time, uh, these days there's not a whole lot of spare time, but generally just you know, I I, I like to ride bikes. You know, I like to to go on rides, um, bicycles. Um, what kind of what kind of bike riding do you do? Uh, road biking. I, I have a single speed, so I do uh, mainly like hill climbs and stuff. Basically spend an hour working your ass off getting to the top of the hill and then just fly down it. <laughs> I like doing that kind of stuff. I have a uh, um, single speed road bike as well. I have a single speed um, mountain mm-hmm. bike too. I just really dig the single speed oh, stuff. Cool. It's just so much simpler. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to think about much anything at all. You can just kind of enjoy it. Exactly. That's how I feel too. So yeah, I, I would say bike riding, um, getting my yard done when I moved into this place, uh, it was just a barren wasteland. So I've been spending as much time as I can, you know, terracing and I uh, put in the pond last year and I've been sort of aquascaping that and getting that all nice. What do you got in the pond? Um, you got any fish? Yeah, yeah. I've got, uh, I went with domestic koi just because they're a little friendlier with we, we have nieces and nephews and it, you know, when you can put your hand in the water and they come up and nibble your fingers, that's kind of cool. So I, uh, 
I got some, I got like half a dozen domestic koi. I got uh, maybe three or four butter, butterfly koi. Got a ton of goldfish, which were the starter fish from last year. Um, and then I've got a bunch of mosquito fish, and I actually have bullfrog tadpoles that I just added a few weeks ago. Oh, excellent. Very cool. Yeah. You know, piranha will do that too. They'll nibble at you a little bit just so, you know, you want to throw some extra goodies in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, stay away from the piranha. I, I was thinking about adding some paku, but it, uh, my plants are having a hard enough time with the koi. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me one thing about you that is something I would have never known, maybe something that not many people know about you. I really enjoy, well, that's pretty common. I mean, I I love antiques and art, definitely. But the kind of art that I think I like the most, and this might be kind of strange, is medical anatomical etchings. Really? Tell me about that. Um. I don't know, there's just something kind of cool about it. You know, there's there's a macabre feeling to it, but there's also, you know, it's very graceful. And, you know, the the guys that did it were not coming from a place of art, you know, which is kind of refreshing to me. They were coming from a place of, this is how this is. You know, <laughs> like it's... Right. And then, and then of, there you are, uh, kind of throwing it into... Uh a new category where you can appreciate it a, a different way, which is very interesting. Exactly. I mean, I, my big thing lately has been filling the shop with art. I've got, you know, zombie stuff. I've got uh, random scribblings of people that have stopped by. I've got uh, a giant painting of uh, a memorial painting for my grandfather um, up on the wall on canvas. Um. I've got a PBR sign, and you know, like I've got people's hats hanging from the ceilings. Um, but I think one of my favorites is is the anatomical drawings, you know, of um, you know the real, real old etchings that you you would find in like a medical book in like the early 1800s. Just you know, some guys, some guys standing there with like a flap of skin hanging off, and you can see like all of the the muscle structure underneath. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's refreshing. There's something very cool about it. Interesting. So I would think, I would think that that might be one of them. Uh, the other thing is I, I brew beer, um, and I have grown my own tobacco and processed it. Really? Wow. That's a feat. Yeah. It's very difficult, especially in California. We just don't have the weather to do it. What's next in the shop right now for you? Um, well, one of these days I'm going to get around to carving the one and only Mearsham block that I have. Um, <laughs> but I think the next step for me is really focusing on the Briar Cigar. You know, there's, um, there's a pretty sizable market that I haven't tapped yet for that, and, and we're really working on it still. Just recently broke into China, Australia, uh, Paris, Luxembourg. You know, it's it's getting more and more 
crazy by the day in that department. But when did you start out with the Briar cigar? About two years ago. Um, it was sort of a joint project. Well, it started as sort of just my brainchild, and then it became a joint project between Mimo and I. And uh, actually, Mimo now distributes. Um, he's, I would say, he's the European manager for um, right now just the Briar Cigar, but soon to be the production offerings that I'll be that I've got. Excellent. But, yeah, look, two years ago. Look forward to uh, hearing more about that. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, it's it's cool. We have a good thing going. I I sell his Briar in the states. He sells the Briar Cigar in Europe. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a good gig. Speaking of your pipes and whatnot, where can we purchase your wonderful pipes? Uh, in the States, the best place to go would be, um, tobaccopipecollectors.com currently has, and, and will continue having pipes. Um, in stock, and actually they are priced for members. Um, I believe their membership for the TPC Global Pipe Club is 36 bucks a year, and that will get you all kinds of discounts on pipes, tobacco, pipes from the shop, uh, from the TPC shop, uh, Danish Pipe Shop, BizGuard, all kinds of independent pipe makers, um, ranging from 5 to I think some guys are offering like 20, 25% off um, if you're a member. So it, you really can't beat it. You buy a $36 membership and you could save like 75 bucks on a pipe immediately. Um, that's yeah. one place. Uh, definitely Yvonne a good Reed. deal. Definitely a good deal. Go oh, yeah. Everybody should go check out tobaccopipecollectors.com and, and, and become a member. Absolutely. I think you're you're part of that too, aren't you? Indeed, yes, I am one of the vendors there. Yep, we're, we're the smart ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the the other place would be uh, Yvonne Reese, uh, YvonneReese dot com. The uh, and folks can get in touch with you if they want to do a commission, correct? Definitely, yes. You can go um, to uh, morganpipes.com and contact him that way. Just click on the contact button. You can also go to the dealer section and see all of the numerous dealers that, that Chris deals with. But go ahead. Sorry to interrupt there. No, no, that's all right. And if, if you're in Europe listening to this um, and you're a, a retailer, you can contact Nemo. Um his website is easy enough to find, or you can contact me, and I'll put him in touch with you. Um, or you can check out one of the, the many shops. We've got the Danish Pipe Shop, uh, Pipes.ru. Um, mainly those are for Briar Cigars, but the Danish Pipe Shop does carry high-grade, my high-grade lines. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. There's there's a lot of shops, too many to list. So check out the website, morganpipes.com. And um, if you're looking for Briar, for smaller orders and stuff and you're in the States, uh, I can definitely provide that. And yeah, that's my, that's my shameless plug. And that is, that <laughs> is some fantastic briar too. That's what I use as well. Um, Mimo briar is just, it's just great. So um, take my word for it. Take Chris's word for it. 
and you can very easily, thankfully for for you now, um, you can get it from Chris Morgan, which is it, that's just a great idea. It's just fantastic because um, otherwise, you know, guys would have to put together these large orders, and yeah. um, you know, getting a large order from overseas is is, is a daunting task. And so now that you're able to offer it up um, through your website and here in the states, it's it's fantastic. It's a great idea. So that's that's a very cool thing that you're doing there. Um, and all all orders are you know over a hundred bucks or have free shipping. Um, I take care of the duties. You all you have to do is buy the wood, and I'll send it right to your door. That is fantastic. Um, very very good stuff. I can't I can't say enough about Mimo's. Briar, it's it's just great stuff. Chris, it has been absolutely wonderful talking to you today. Thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to to chat. I know we've been meaning to do this forever. I'm so glad mm-hmm. we finally got around to it. I love your work. Um, it's just great Thank to you. see an artist like you out there uh, doing some awesome stuff and and getting your your ideas and your concepts and your artwork into so many different areas just very cool and it's it's a a pleasure to chat with you today buddy thanks holy same to you and that was my chat with mr chris morgan what an interesting guy he is very talented and very in tune with his artistry great stuff there you never know what that guy is going to create next don't forget this podcast was made possible by tobaccopipecollectors.com TPC has something for everyone. Become a preferred vendor or get your membership today. Go check out what Mike has to offer at TobaccoPipeCollectors.com right now. There is no telling what gem of a pipe you'll find over there. Hey, let me know what treasure you found over at TPC. This is Oli for Oompal.com, wishing you very good luck deciding which Chris Morgan pipe will be next in your collection.